Dear Father, thank you for, again for what you have revealed. We pray that you will bless as we look at these things that have been written by your servant, that we may understand them and your spirit will speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. The last three uh, programs we've looked at the biblical evidence for the Trinity. And it's essential that these matters be established biblically for all our doctrines must be and are based on the Bible rather than on the spirit of prophecy. This afternoon we'll begin to look at what Ellen White had to say about the Godhead. <clears throat> but before we look at these statements, it is vital that we realise that Ellen White's earlier writings were neutral with regard to the Trinity. They were not Trinitarian, nor were they anti-Trinitarian. This can be seen in several ways. Firstly, Ellen White did not reflect any of the strong anti-Trinitarian statements of her contemporary brethren. For example, she did not say that at some point in the eternity of the past, Jesus had beginning of days, as Jane Andrews had said. She did not say that Christ was the literal Son of God, as John Madison had said. Nor did she say that the Holy Spirit was not a person, as D.M. Canwright had said. Ellen White did not say that the Trinity doctrine was absurd, pagan, Roman Catholic or unscriptural, as James White and Jane Loughborough had said. In fact, she nowhere mentions the term Trinity, not in her published writings anyway. Secondly, almost all of the statements of Ellen White, which might be considered as objections to the Trinity, have come from Ellen White's later writings. When she wrote these things, she was also making strong Trinitarian-type statements. The only early statements of Ellen White that have reasonably been claimed as non-Trinitarian are those which speak of the Father and the Son in the heavenly councils but make no mention of the Holy Spirit in those councils. However, these statements are not anti-Trinitarian, they are neutral. If the Holy Spirit had been mentioned in these councils, as he later was, the statements would have been clearly Trinitarian. The only way that the heavenly councils could be described in a neutral way was to omit all mention of the Holy Spirit. So, when Ellen White began making her Trinitarian-type statements, it was not a reversal or contradiction of her earlier statements, as some people have said. Rather, it was a gradual unfolding of the truth as it was revealed to her, as God's people were able to bear it. It was only after the doctrine of the Trinity had been presented from Scripture by Prescott and Lacey that she published her strong Trinitarian-type statements. And if we have our, another presentation, we'll be looking at that aspect. 
This is just as it was in 1888, when righteousness by faith was first presented biblically by Wagoner and Jones, and then subsequently confirmed by Ellen White. We will now look at some of these Trinitarian-type statements that are confirmed by Ellen White's own handwriting. Are you ready for them? Our first example is a very well-known statement that most people know from Desire of Ages. Life original, unborrowed and underived. Andreessen tells us that this statement was responsible for directing many of his contemporaries toward Trinitarianism. He said, I was particularly interested in the statement in Desire of Ages, which at one time caused great concern in the denomination theologically. In Christ is life, original, unborrowed, underived. That statement may not seem very revolutionary to you, but it was to us. I was sure Sister White had never written, In Christ is life, original, unborrowed, underived. But now I found it in her own handwriting just as it had been published. And Andreessen went specifically to visit Ellen White to check up on that, he tells us. This statement, shown here from her files, is here verified by Ellen White's signature at the end of the letter. Letter 309, 1905. Notice the characteristic long swirl at the beginning of the capitals E and G in her signature. Our next example from manuscript 20, 1906. At the top of the typed copy of this manuscript, Ellen White has written, I have read this carefully and accept. Why would she make this unusual statement? She must have realised that there would be some who would doubt that she'd actually written it. I've included a large and enlarged copy of this statement so that you can see it clearly. Thankfully, the original handwritten copy of what she wrote has survived. Not all of, which she, of her handwriting has survived, of course. It is shown here. Ellen White's handwriting, as you'll see, is not easy to read, but you gradually, gradually get used to it. I have divided it into three sections so that it can be seen more clearly. <coughs> Starting at the top, it reads, something rather, shall sit down and the books shall be opened, and every, next line, man shall be judged by the law of God, written by the finger of God, and given to Moses to be deposited in the ark, and the ark in the Holy of Holies. Then there is a record kept of all the deeds of men, and according to their works will every man receive whether they be good or whether they be evil. The Holy Spirit, move that up a bit, the Holy Spirit always lead to the written word. 
the Holy Spirit is a person. You see that there? The Holy Spirit is a person, for he beareth witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. When this witness is born, it bears its own evidence with it. And at such times we believe and are sure that we are the children of God. And how much evidence we can give to believers and unbelievers when we can voice the words of John. We have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Now up a bit more. The Holy Spirit, and she originally wrote, is a person, and crossed that out and changed it to has a personality. Else he could not bear witness to our spirits and with our spirits that we are the children of God. He must also be a divine person or he could not search out the secret which lay hidden in the mind of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Now uh, I'm reading from my transcription of her handwriting which I poured over for many hours to get it right. What an amazing series of statements about the person of the Holy Spirit. It is no wonder that she wrote at the top of the type copy, I have read this carefully and accept. The next example is verified by some extra words which Ellen White wrote on the page. Self is to be sunk in Christ. You see that there? I've highlighted that. The significant part of her statement refers to the Father, Son and Holy Spirit as three distinct agencies. It says, three distinct agencies, the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost work together for human beings. They are united in the work of making the church on earth like the church in heaven. They place the resources of heaven at the disposal of those who will appreciate and impart these spiritual treasures, multiplying them by using them to the glory of God. Every diligent effort to improve adds to the gifts we have. The powers of heaven work with human beings on the plan of multiplication. Christ came to the earth to set in operation a vast missionary work. Those who compose his church are to cooperate with him by revealing his attributes. Self is to be sunk in Christ. They are to act under the dictation of the Holy Spirit. Pardon me. This is from manuscript 27 and a half, 1900. It's a strange number for a manuscript, but there it is. As was mentioned before, the early statements of Ellen White do not mention the Holy Spirit in the heavenly councils. However, in 1901, the Holy Spirit was included in those councils. It is in this statement. The Godhead was stirred with pity for the race and the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit 
gave themselves to the working out of the plan of redemption. In order to fully carry out this plan, it was decided that Christ, the only begotten Son of God, should give himself an offering for sin. What line can measure the depth of this love? This statement is from letter 12, 1901, and it is verified by Ellen White's signature at the end of it. The next statement is verified by the fact that Ellen White has made a handwritten correction, changing the word outer to sanctified. In this statement, Ellen White calls the Father, Son and Holy Spirit the three great and glorious heavenly characters. It is all so good, we'll read it. The heavenly powers have pledged themselves to minister to human agents, to make the name of God and of Christ and of the Holy Spirit their living efficiency, working and energising the sanctified man, to make this name above every other name. All the treasures of heaven are under obligation to do for man infinitely more than human beings can comprehend by multiplying threefold the human with the heavenly agencies. The three great and glorious heavenly characters are present on the occasion of baptism. All the human capabilities are to be henceforth consecrated powers to do service for God in representing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, upon whom they depend. All heaven is represented by these three in covenant relation with the new life. This passage is from Manuscript 45, 1904, page 10. Our final example is a whole page of Ellen White's handwriting, which is very unusual because on this page she sets out to systematically describe the Father, Son and Holy Spirit and the relationships that exist between them. Sadly, the only copy I could obtain of this page has the ends of most of the lines cut short. The key wording, however, remains intact. It is the original of manuscript 21, 1906. It is a bit difficult to read, so I've cut it into three sections as before and enlarged them to make it easier. The Father is not to be described by the something. The Father is all the fullness of the Godhead, invisible to mortal earthly sight. The Son is all the fullness of the Godhead, revealed, she's crossed out and replaced it with manifested, he is the express image of his Father's person. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Here is the personality of the and beginning of the word Father. The Spirit, the Comforter, whom Christ promised to send after he ascended to heaven, is Christ, she had written, and she's crossed that out, is the Spirit in all the fullness of the Godhead, making manifest 
to thee something. All who receive him and believe in him something. Then she says, Here are the three living persons, which is changed to personalities of the heavenly trio, in which every soul repenting of their sins, believing crossed out, replaced with receiving Christ by a living faith to them who are baptised and she's crossed out in the name of Jesus Christ uh, and replaced it with in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. These high dignified personalities give power to the obedient subjects because they are God's property to be called the sons of God. What is the something or other? To do. Believe in Jesus Christ because they are his property which he hath purchased with his own blood. And I can't read the rest of it. You will notice here many incomplete thoughts and errors of punctuation, capitalization and spelling. You can see how it was necessary for her secretaries to put it into a proper form before it was published and even before it was archived in her manuscript files. But through it all we can clearly see what Ellen White is revealing to us. You will have noticed the expression the, three, the living three personalities of the heavenly trio. How very significant that statement is. How Trinitarian and how blessed we are to have it in Ellen White's own handwriting. What is more, there is evidence that it is her own expression, not something she copied from another. I can share that with you later if you want. Of particular interest is the fact that although Ellen White changed three living persons to three living personalities as she was writing it out by hand, when it was typed up as Manuscript 21, 1906, it was changed back to three living persons and there were handwritten corrections made to that manuscript by Ellen White, confirming that the change back to three living persons was by her direction. This is one of the many examples showing that Ellen White used the words person and personality interchangeably when referring to God. A number of other statements, examples of statements verified by Ellen White's handwriting can be found in my book. Now you may have noticed that in some of the above quotes, Ellen White refers to Christ as the only begotten Son of God. What did she mean by that? In the 1919 Bible conference, where the President A.G. Daniels was in the chair, the matter of only begotten was raised by several participants. As a means of resolving the conflict over this expression, A.G. Daniels suggested, perhaps in another study, we might have a study on the word begotten. Sadly, this suggestion was never taken up at that time. In fact, it was not until 1938 that a thorough study was made of this subject in a PhD thesis. 
According to D. Moody in the Journal of Biblical Literature, volume 72, 1953, the first thorough study of, quote, only begotten, unquote, was a PhD thesis by F. M. Warden in 1938. What Warden and others have discovered is that the word translated only begotten does not mean that. The idea of begetting is not present in the word. I thought it might be helpful to look at this today and see how the confusion came to be. The term only begotten has become so ingrained in Christian thinking about Christ that it is hard to think otherwise. Some early Christian creeds mention it and make the point that Christ was begotten and not made. John is the only biblical writer to use the words only begotten when writing of Jesus, the most remembered being in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The English words only begotten are represented in the Greek by just one word, monogenes. This word is made up of two other words, monos and genos. Monos is the normal word for only, but it is frequently translated alone, that is, by oneself. Genos basically means a category or kind of thing. Thus, Jesus spoke of a net which was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind. That's genos. In English, we use the word genus to refer to the category of living things, which is one step up from species. From this, we may rightly conclude that monogenes means the only one of its kind or unique. The problem is that there is a related word which means to give birth. It is genao. It is used by the angel when talking to Mary about the coming birth of Jesus. The angel said to her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee, Genao, shall be called the Son of God. There were thus two closely related words, only one of which refers to a birth. It was easy for people to get confused. We have a similar situation in English, for as well as genus, we have generate, which means to produce or bring forth. Early Christians did not always preserve the distinction between genos and genao, and monogenes came to mean only begotten. Is this correct? How can we know? The only real way of discovering the meaning of words in ancient languages is to look at how the words were used. There are four passages in the New Testament using monogenes, additional to those where John is referring to Jesus. These are firstly Luke 7, 12, 
Now, when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. Again, Luke 8, 41 and 42, And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet, and besought him that he would come into his house, for he had one only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she lay a-dying. But as he went, the people thronged him. You know the story. And then there's Luke nine thirty-eight to 40. And behold, a man of the company cried out, saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he is my only child. And lo, a spirit taketh him, and he suddenly crieth out, and it teareth him that he foameth again, and bruising him hardly departing, parteth from him. And I besought thy disciples to cast him out, and they could not. And then we have Hebrews eleven seventeen, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. In all of these verses, we find that a tragedy has just happened or seems about to happen. The only child has just died or is about to die. It seems that monogenes is a suitable word to express the yearning of the parent over their special child. All three passages in Luke are translated with just the word only or one only as a translation of monogenes. There is no mention of begotten. If in these verses only is a correct translation, why make a difference when translating those verses which apply monogenes to Jesus? Why introduce the concept of begotten? In the case of Abraham, we know that Isaac was not the only son begotten of him. There was also Ishmael. So if monogenes had really meant only begotten, this statement in Hebrews would not have been true. Isaac was Abraham's very special son, the son of promise, the miracle son of his true wife, Sarah. This helps us to understand that monogenes does truly mean special, precious, and unique. The passage in Hebrews 11:17 is helpful in another way also. It leads us back to a Hebrew word equivalent to monogenes. We recall that God said to, Adam, to Abraham in Genesis 22:2, "Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah." and offered him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. The Hebrew word here translated only is yashid. This word does literally mean only, but in a special way. It is used 11 times in the Old Testament. What is of most interest is that in the Septuagint Greek translation of the Old Testament, Yashid is usually translated either by monogenes 
or by another important word, as here in Genesis 22, agapetos. Yashid is translated monogenes in the following verses. Judges 11.34 And Jephthah came to Mizpah unto his house, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances, and she was his only child. Beside her he had neither son nor daughter. And you remember what happened with poor Jephthah. He'd made this oath concerning whoever came out to meet him. Then we have Psalm 22.20 where David is praying, Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. And 25.16 Turn thee unto me and have mercy upon me for I am desolate and afflicted. Psalm 35.17 Lord, how long wilt thou look on? Rescue my soul from their destructions, my darling from the lions. The above four verses as they are as they read in the King James Version, they are the only places in the Greek Septuagint translation of the Old Testament where the word monogenes is found. They show us that Yashid and monogenes can mean only, desolate, alone and darling, which some of you may know means only one. The psalmist calls his life his darling. He has only one life and it's very precious to him. Yashid is also translated agapados, as we find in the following verses. We notice before Genesis 22 verse 2, and he said, Take now thy son, thy only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I'll tell thee of. The word only there is uh, agapetos in the Greek translation. Genesis 22.12 Here the angels said, Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son thine only son from me. Amos 8.10 And I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation and I will bring up sackcloth upon all loins and baldness upon every head and I will make it as the mourning of an only son and the end thereof as a bitter day. And finally Zechariah 12.10 They shall look upon me whom they have pierced Jesus, of course. And they shall mourn for him as one that mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In each of these verses, Yashid has been translated only and each is in the context of tragedy and death. The idea of agapetos has not come through from the Greek into English. Some of you might be able to tell me what agapetos means. It is related to agape, which means love. So agapetos means dearly beloved. So, so now we have a Hebrew word, yashid, which combines in itself 
the meanings, meanings of monogenes, one and only, unique, very precious, and agapetos, dearly beloved. The remarkable thing is that both of these Greek words are used in the New Testament of Christ. John uses monogenes, as we have noted. Agapetos is used of Jesus in the following verses, at Jesus' baptism. And lower voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved son, my Agapetos son, in whom I am well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And it's used in Jesus' parable of the vineyard concerning himself. Luke 20, verse 13. Then said the Lord of the vineyard, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. It may be they will reverence him when they see him. Thus the father always used Agapetos, dearly beloved, when speaking audibly to his son, both at his baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus also used Agapetos in the parable referring to himself. Whereas John uses monogenes, unique, special, one and only when referring to the specialness of Jesus. The idea of begotten, however, does not belong with this word. Our pioneers did not know this. Ellen White did not know it either. It is therefore not surprising that she frequently used the biblical term only begotten when referring to Jesus. We still do it today, even when we should know better. As preachers we do it. The modern translations of John 3.16 where they say, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, as it says in NIV, still sound strange to our ears. Yet Ellen White did at times refrain from using the term only begotten son. She says instead only son. She did this as early as 1852. God consented to give his only son to die for lost man. That's from Youth's Instructor. She made 11 other similar statements, including the following. Would that we could ever realise the love which God has manifested toward us fallen sinners in giving his only son for our salvation. And uh, in manuscript 50, 1912, 53, tell them of the Father who loved them so that he gave his only Son for their salvation. But it does not end there. She made other statements reminiscent of what we found concerning Monogenes, Yashid, and Agapetos. She said, Think ye that the father yielded up his dearly beloved son without a struggle? 1854, Experience and Views. The father has given a pledge to sinners in that he withheld not his dearly beloved son but gave him a sacrifice for them. 1854. 
76. Here the term dearly beloved, agapados, is twice used. Likewise the term darling, which we have seen as a translation of monogenes, is twice used by Ellen White. It was even a struggle with the God of heaven, whether to let guilty man perish or to give his darling son to die for them. When I first read that, I thought, that's rather quaint, but now I know why. I saw that it was impossible for God to alter or change his law to save lost, perishing man. Therefore he suffered his darling son to die for man's transgression. Isn't that amazing? All right, it must be now time for questions. How does not believing in the Trinity affect my salvation? Well, that's an important one. There are uh, many good Christians who don't believe in the Trinity. I don't believe that their salvation may be at stake at all. But if when we know the truth and we don't follow it, that's a different matter. <coughs> um, but uh, God doesn't uh, force anyone to believe a certain way. He gives us evidence and his Holy Spirit may take years to bring us to a conviction of the truth of a certain thing. Um, when I began researching this book, I didn't know whether Trinity was right or Trinity was wrong. I had to look at it and over a period of 10 years I came to the conclusion that Judging by the weight of evidence, Trinity was the correct answer. You have to do the same thing for yourself. Gospel Workers 513. In fellowship with God, with Christ and with holy angels, why is the Holy Spirit left out if there is a third being? And... Uh, Another reference in Review and Herald, August 17, 1869. Um, again, there's God and Christ and the angels, no mention of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know when the statement in Gospel Workers was made, but we'll take this one in Review and Herald. It was made in 1869. This was well before Ellen White began making any strong Trinitarian type statements. Um, it's true that we have fellowship with Christ and the angels. We have fellowship with the Holy Spirit but she just doesn't mention it here. And that was one way in which she was able to make a neutral statement as I mentioned earlier by not mentioning the Holy Spirit. Mrs White declared that those who find secret hidden meanings in the scriptures that are not apparent in the language employed are false teachers. Why then do our theologians find hidden meanings in the Hebrew and Greek that are opposite to the plain utterances of Scripture in English, namely that God is one person, the Father? I don't quite understand that last statement, namely that God is one person. I presume God talking about God the Father there. If it's talking about the Godhead, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, they're not one person. 
Some don't quite understand that, but let's go back to the, the previous statement. Um, in studying the meanings of Hebrew and Greek words, one is not looking for hidden meanings, one is looking for the apparent meaning of those Hebrew and Greek words. Um, that is the only way that translators can translate from one language to another is to work out what is the meaning of the words in the language one is translating from. Any of you who are bilingual or who have done work in translating will know the difficulty that one has in translating from one language to another because there's usually not a word-for-word -word correspondence between, from one language to another. They, uh, for instance, one simple example that you may not be aware of is that the Greek word which we translate in, which is en in Greek, can mean as well as in, it can mean by. And very frequently in the King James Version it's been translated in when the more correct meaning would be by and it gives us a lot greater meaning to the whole passage when we realise that uh, the meaning of the word is really by there, not in. That's just one example of many. Why were church books edited to remove all non-Trinitarian sentiments in the 1940s? Why have many people been disfellowshipped from the SDA church over this Trinity issue? Since the doctrine can't be found in the Bible as clearly written in English. Well, there are, uh, there are many doctrines which uh, are not spelled out as clearly as we spell them out, say, in the 28, 29 fundamentals. For instance, the uh, idea of the uh, investigative judgment or pre-advent judgment, whichever you like to call it, beginning in 1844, that requires quite a, a series of, of studies You've got to look at the date for the beginning. You've got to look at the relationship with Daniel 9 and the meaning of Daniel 9 that goes with Daniel 8, etc. There are a lot of things, factors go into that and you don't find it clearly spelled out. You see a description of it in Daniel 7, but it's uh, not, doesn't tell us when that happened. Um, now you say, why were church books edited to remove all non-Trinitarian sentiments in the 1940s? I wasn't there to, to know. I was a young fella, about three years old at that stage. Um, did they do that? I don't know. Um, certainly we know that uh, Leroy Froome, the great advocate for the Trinity, as you would know, when he wrote a piece for um, the Collier's Encyclopedia, I think it was, he wrote a piece on Seventh-day Adventists for them. He didn't even mention that they were Trinitarian. So there was not a, uh, 
any sort of uh, underhand uh, method of dealing with things. We know that, if, for instance, um, Uriah Smith's book, because it's so good in, in some of its um, expositions of Daniel, of Daniel Revelation, some of the statements in that were, were altered in, uh, in later editions because of the fact that it was a book that was used uh, as a missionary outreach book to non-Adventists and we didn't want to give them the wrong impression. <coughs> but whether it's removed from all our books, I've got no idea. I'd be interested to know about that. Why did Mrs White never tell us anywhere in her writings why the SDA church was wrong about the Godhead and needed to change its beliefs in this area? It's not the way Ellen White worked. Um, she didn't go about telling them, for instance, where they were wrong about righteousness by faith. But when the subject was brought out uh, ably by Wagoner and Jones in 1888, Ellen White supported them. And uh, so it was with the Trinity. She made certain statements, as you would have seen in what we've looked at even today, very early statements that gave clues, and there were others I haven't mentioned, that if our people had, had looked into those clues that Ellen White gave, um, then they would have realised that they were on the wrong track with not being non-Trinitarian. But they didn't, uh, didn't take these things up. Ellen White and God, leading Ellen White, God is very gentle. David said, thy gentleness has made me great. God is very gentle with us. And he leads us only as we are able to bear. <clears throat> um, so that, that is why she didn't tell us that the church was wrong in that fashion. She uh, eventually she presented the truth and about Trinitarian things and God's people eventually caught on and uh, went with that. It says here, it took Israel of old about a century to adopt the new doctrine about God called Baal. Why then did it take a similar length of time for modern Israel, our church, to adopt the doctrine about God called the Trinity? Why is there no plain thus saith the Lord for the Trinity belief in the Bible, considering we are told in great controversy not to accept any doctrine without it, accept it should be, I think, any doctrine without a plain thus saith the Lord? Well, a plain thus saith the Lord doesn't mean uh, a statement, you must believe in the Trinity. It is plain, for instance, that Isaiah 9 verse 6 says that the son that was to be born, the virgin's uh, son that was to be born, would be the mighty God. That is very plain, the statement that Jesus is God. And uh, the statement of Jesus before Abraham was I am, and when you look into the significance of that, 
It's a very plain claim that Jesus was the one who spoke to Moses at the burning bush, gave the law, etc., etc. And uh, it's always by looking at the meanings of the text as we go through and just working at what is, what is Paul saying here or what is John saying here. Not looking for some hidden meaning but looking for the apparent meaning of what they're saying. And uh, it all adds up, I believe, to the doctrine of the Trinity. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.